With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Yeah, I thought we, we played some really good cricket for pretty much all the series, barring some fielding yesterday. I thought um, the quality of our cricket was really good. Um, I thought we were starting to get the big contributions from our top order that we've asked for for a little while. Um, and I thought our bowlers in, in both test matches were, were excellent to create as many chances as they did. And then to be able to back up um, when we asked them to do a pretty big job here. In Adelaide, bowl back-to-back innings as uh, 160 or 70 overs and, and still be creating chances, I thought was um, an awesome effort. Hello and welcome to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. That was Tim Payne speaking after Australia defeated Pakistan 2-0 in their recent test series. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, and joining me as ever is my co-host, Paul Dennett. Paul, how are you? Hey, man, uh, I'm a bit conflicted, if I'm honest. Jeez, Australia were fantastic, and I maintain what I said last week, that they're the best side in the world right now. And I'm just a bit disappointed with the Australia-Pakistan series. I really want this rivalry to flourish and Pakistan were pretty abject one of the the more disappointing test series I've seen in a long time a lot of my friends who are half into cricket were all saying that they were less interested in this series than they had been for for uh, a long time in an Australian test series at home so hopefully uh, we can see something a lot better when New Zealand turn up I enjoyed the series immensely I think it's great to see Australia dominate another side after we had a really awful year after the sandpaper scandal but we'll look we'll touch on that and a lot more to come we're going to wrap up the Pakistan series we're going to head into the cricket headlines and I'm not happy about the women's big bash league finals scheduling and then we'll wrap the podcast up but to start things off we're going to call the chief cricket writer for the Australian newspaper Peter Lawler to get his thoughts on the Pakistan Australia series. Andrew. Hi, Pete. It's Manners and Paul. How are you? Good. How are you, Paul? G'day, Pete. Good, mate. Pete, what did you make of the series against Pakistan? Uh, what did I make of the series against Pakistan? I think it was a great period of consolidation for Australian cricket. It built on the gains it had made from the Ashes. 
It was uh, stunningly successful for one David Warner. Amusing to see Australia win without Steve Smith, not contributing many runs. Inspiring to see the way Mitchell Stark rebuilt himself at the request of his coaches and came back and, gee, he bowled really well. And um, I'm a bit excited. This team has got itself into a really good position. Do you agree with me, Pete, that right now, on neutral territory, uh, even though the rankings don't say it, Australia is the best side in the world again? No. <laughs> no, I still... <laughs> neutral conditions. Oh. Please don't agree with him. Look, Please. I really want to see them go toe-to-toe with India, back-to-back series. What would, by neutral conditions, do you think Australia could take on India, what, in New Zealand or where? Lords. Yeah, Lords, in the, in the World Test Championship final, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, time will tell... Um, I, I certainly think they'll give India a run for their money. India have a great bowling attack, don't they? Yeah, I don't know. Pops? It's a good yeah. question. Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're certainly there and about, but we haven't seen them tested by a really good side yet, have we? No. I mean, that, that, that England side wasn't that strong and, and only really, you know, and if it weren't for Steve Smith, I think Australia would have come home in a sorry state. So we'll wait and see. But they're, they're certainly there and about. So I certainly think that they're the second best team in world cricket at the moment and, and threatening the number one spot. Yeah, I can't wait for, for next summer, as you said, back-to-back series against India. It should be, should be great. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Pete, you were saying there about David Warner's success. Uh, what do you make of his sort of, I guess, comeback after the Ashes? I think it's inspirational, really. I, I, I think it speaks to his determination and his character. I think... Lesser people and lesser sports people, I probably wouldn't have recovered from the first, you know, the humiliation and the scorn that he copped for what he did in Cape Town. Uh, then to have the ashes humiliation piled on top of that, that could break a lot of people. I reckon a lesser person would have, would have walked away and said, you know what, I'm going to go and play T20 cricket or one day cricket or this is too much for me. But Warner came back and he's worked so hard on his batting. I think he said he faced 4,000 balls or something like that in the lead-up. I heard a really good interview uh, with his batting coach the other day, Trent Woodhill, talking about some little changes that he's made. And it was really interesting what he said, actually. He was saying that he's got Warner back to doing what he does best, and that is being in the position to attack. Woodhill's theory is that if you're in a position to attack, you can leave the ball. Mm. But if you're in a defensive position, like expecting the ball to swing and, and expecting that you're going to have to leave the ball, you're not in a position to attack and you will come undone. And he got David to work on that. And he's just been so still at the crease, hasn't he? He just sets himself up. He's become more of a subtle batsman than he used to be. Do you guys agree with that? I, I, re- I reckon the Warner of old, the balls used to bounce back off the pickets, off the fence. He used to hit the ball so hard, but he was just hitting the ball with weight, weighting the ball to the boundary in that Adelaide game. Yeah, I think he knows how to milk an attack now. I think when he gets in and he's in rhythm, he can just knock it around, take his twos, hit the odd boundary and not get ahead of himself. Yeah, yeah. So he's been out twice this summer and scored about 760 runs, something like that. He's only been dismissed twice. Incredible. In how many innings? Is it eight innings? 
Oh, it's magnificent, and I'm an unashamed uh, David Warner fan and always have been. I think I agree with you, Pete. I would have given it away. I would have been unable to cope with everything that he's coped with, and some of it was brought on himself, which has been you know, covered at length, but I think it's yeah. fantastic. And I think it's also a good point that, that Woodhill makes, because I think he did go a little bit too far the other way, maybe for a while, a little bit too defensively, and if he's just edged that back a little bit more towards, uh, as you say, being ready to attack, then um, that's fantastic. Would you have declared if you were Tim Payne? Uh, I would have stayed till tea, to be honest. But uh, I, I think they'd, they'd resolved earlier, hadn't they, that there was a certain time that they were going to declare, and that's what worked for the team. And uh, good on them. But, yeah, I would, I would have waited till tea. But I, I tend to agree that you can't... Those big records, they can just start to... It starts to become a bit of a carnival when you let bats from bat for that long. And you didn't know what the weather was going to do. There was every chance, you know, that it was going to rain the entire... You could have lost the whole next day. As it turned out, you didn't. But knowing that, I think they did the right thing by putting the team first. As it was, they gave him one extra over, didn't they, to get past the 3-3-4. But uh, I didn't have too much problem with it. And uh, uh, I reckon you'd know if David had a problem with it. And I don't reckon he does either. Maybe when, maybe in a year or two, when he thinks about it, he will. Yeah, no, I certainly couldn't. Would have been a great moment having uh, Brian Lara there because Brian Lara was at the ground. Would have been a great moment, but anyway. Yeah, I just think that I can't criticise Payne for declaring everything he says right. And also, they took six wickets that night, and it was much difficult, much more difficult getting wickets during the daytime. So, from the team's point of view, he did the right thing. As a selfish Australian, I just think, gosh, if he got 405 not out, it could have stood for 50 years. And every single time around the world, as the years go by, that they put these lists up, I'd argue that maybe they won't remember the Australia-Pakistan series score for, for all that for very long. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah we, were all, we were all robbed of witnessing a, a bit of history. Well, we got some history anyway, didn't we? But yeah, no, I see, I see your point. But, uh... I'm such a statistical yeah, I, nerd, I would have let him go for the 501 as well. <laughs> yeah, it, it is so. It, it, it's, I love this uh, tactical thing around the pink ball games that uh, if you can be bowling at that certain period in the evening, it, you you are going to get ahead of the game. You? you know, it's like it's like getting the new pill in the first hour of Brisbane. You know, you just that that gives you such a great advantage, and it's uh, it's almost like the Tour de France, like. You're riding along in the flat, and suddenly there's a hill climb. I mean, the whole the circumstances change so radically at that point, and so the tactics of a game change too. It's kind of a it's curious. I don't mind it at all, actually. It's almost a throwback to the days of sticky wickets, where you'd suddenly, mm. you know, declare at nine for sixty or something to get the opposition in before the wicket dried up. It's it's a, it's an own, it's <laughs> it's a bit different. Hey, what did you make of Ian Chappell's comments about um, uh, Steve Smith moving the field around and that he thought that was potentially um, sort of white-anting um, Tim Payne. Do you think there's anything to that? I reckon uh, if a fielder did it to Ian Chappell, you'd have been white-anting Ian Chappell. <laughs> and if you did it to Mark Taylor, you'd have been white-anting Mark Taylor. But in that situation, I don't think he is white-anting Tim Payne. And I think if Tim Payne doesn't have a problem with Steve Smith setting the field, there's no problem here. And Tim doesn't. Tim acknowledges that Steve Smith and David Warner have so much more experience than him and he has a job to do and sometimes he just lets them fill in or advise or do those sorts of things. And it's a mark of the security that he has in his position that he doesn't mind that he will defer to people who know better. That's good leadership. You know when uh, 
when India played in the World Cup, around the 35th over of the game, Coley was moving out to the boundary, mm. and MS Dhoni was not only moving the field, he was calling the bowling changes. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's right, Anty. <laughs> like throwing in, you know, basically got the keys to the car. And so you, you remember how to drive this, don't you? I've got to go and sit in the back seat. I'll be better suited down the back of the bus at the moment. Um, yeah, I've got no problem with it. I reckon it's fine. I think it's a stylistic thing as well that Chappelle needed to rule the roost and he probably wasn't comfortable with that level of um, delegation. But you know, Yeah, yeah. Style thing, personality thing, era thing. It, different people have different approaches, don't they? Like, uh, uh, AB was happy to let Bob Simpson mm. run the team. But the minute Tubby took over, the minute Mark Taylor took over, he said, no, Bob, you put out the cones at training. <laughs> I'm in charge now. And that was the dynamic of their relationship. Uh, th- there's no one way, is there, to run a cricket team. Well, they both worked. Except uh, the captain has ultimate control, or if they want it. And, but if Tim Payne wants Justin Langer and Steve Smith and David Warner and others to take a load off his shoulders, why not? Yeah, I agree. All right, Pete, last one before I let you go. Chris Barrett from the Sydney Morning Herald unearthed some great stats that Australia's winning percentage this year has been 70.7. It's gone up from 35.7% last year. So I guess it's a pretty good indication that Langer's really been able to turn the ship around. Yeah, it's a good year. You can't argue with those figures. When I first looked at him, I didn't believe them, did you? Oh, you just going, really? But um, I had a look at this year. What was it? So they had a bad they, – they drew the, last, the first test of the year with India, which was the last test of that series. They lost the ODIs against India here, 1-3. Then they won 2-0 test series against Sri Lanka. They won 2-0 T20 series against India. They won 3-2 an ODI series against India. They won 5-0 in ODI series against Pakistan. 7-2, I think it was, in the World Cup. Mm-hmm. 2-all in the Ashes. 3-0 against Sri Lanka. 3-0 against Pakistan in T20s. And 2-0 against Pakistan again. Great year. Yeah, really good year. They did lose the two that mattered in the World Cup, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Like, you know, that's the best year you've ever had, but you didn't really, well... You didn't, you didn't win, win the Ashes. The World Cup. And you didn't win the Ashes, so yeah. there's, there's room for improvement. But uh, shaping up very nicely, as you pointed out, Paul, for that um, World Test Championship. Are you guys buying into that? Do you like I, it? I love it. I've for banging on about it for years since we started this podcast that you need some overall context for Test Series. I don't think this model's perfect yet, but I think it's a good start. And I just think it brings in um, people who are just casual fans if you can give them a context to every game. I agree, but the only thing I've got a concern about is if it's going to induce more two-test series. I really don't like two-test series, and it seems that's the way that the model might... um, Lead things to go. That that'd be disappointing. But in the in the in principle, I think it's a great idea. But we now have two measures of cricket, don't we? We've got the ICC Test Test Table rankings, and we've got the World Test Championship rankings, which was causing some confusion in the box on the last day, with people saying Australia are second, and I'm going, no, they're not. They're third. <laughs> <laughs> But in yeah. tennis, they have the number one, and then they also have the sort of um, the fifty-two week race to the end of the year. And so, in the last week of the year, those two positions equal out. But during the year, you can kind of have, um, you know, he's number one at the moment, but he's not number one in the calendar year. So, uh, you know, yeah, cricket's already pretty complex. I suppose an extra complexity is not surprising. 
I'll have to take your word for it. Hey, um, are you lads coming to the Cricket and Craft Beer event at the SCG? When's that? December 11, SCG. It's for subscribers to The Australian. It's a special subscribers-only event, so you're both subscribers, aren't you? Of course. <laughs> All right, Pete. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for letting me plug the cricket and craft beer event. You yeah. not only get me, you get Gideon Haig and Carolyn Overington. Oh, she's, fantastic. She's hosting, and there's craft beer and canapes. Head to theaustralian.com.au and it's all there? Yeah, it is, yeah. Beautiful. All right. Pete, thanks Look so much for coming up. on the podcast. Enjoy the NZ series, and I'll see you soon. Okay, see ya. So, Paul, let's continue our analysis of the second test. Again, baffling selections by Pakistan in the first test and it continued in the second test. Yeah, when I saw Musa Khan's name, and I must admit I didn't, I didn't know anything about him, and then I thought, well, Pakistan have this amazing history of plucking young fast bowlers from nowhere who are instantly really, really good. And so I just thought, oh, I'm really excited to see what he's like. And then they put up his record... Uh, seven first-class matches, 17 wickets at 37.5. And I thought, it's not very good, but oh, I bet his um, first few, few balls will make us realise that that record's not indicative of how good he is. And then he, <laughs> he bowled his first few balls. I thought, oh, he's, he's a reasonable, serviceable bowler, but he just looks briskish, medium pace, not very tall, doesn't move it a great deal. Uh, look, maybe he's a much better bowler than he showed on that first outing. But from what I saw then... It just seemed like a, that there would have to be 15 fast bowlers in Pakistan better than him. Yeah, it was very frustrating that Pakistan came here with such a young attack because they were never really going to succeed with that sort of level of experience or inexperience that the team had. So, yeah, it was disappointing. I wasn't as um, down on the series, though, as you. I, I thought that Australia played good cricket. I, I liked the way we batted and bowled. So I really enjoyed that side of it. And there were glimpses from Pakistan. I think Baba Azam was amazing. That Yusir Shah 100 coming in at number eight was re- really lifted the third day at the Adelaide Oval. And then, you know, they sort of hung around... They didn't quite fold as easily as we've seen other teams. So while I don't think it was a a memorable series, I still quite enjoyed it. Yeah, I see what you say. And I I suppose I'm looking at it more from a a cricket's position in the Australian sporting landscape. And I always think in in November and early December, cricket really has to lever lever its way in. And I don't think that this series did that. I think that for the general public who are somewhat interested in cricket, this series would have passed them by. And I would imagine that Cricket Australia are getting quite nervous and hoping uh, against hope that New Zealand provide competitive opposition because otherwise the, the international season will, be, uh, will have come and gone before anything really happens. Now, the one other thing is that I did the numbers in terms of um, the average runs per wicket from each side. Australia averaged 90 runs per wicket throughout the series and Pakistan 28. So... That's Australia had an average of 3.22 times higher runs per wicket than Pakistan. That's the worst that Pakistan has ever done on a tour here. And in 143 years of test cricket, that's the fifth worst that any side has ever done here. Uh, Bangladesh 2003, West Indies 2015-16, Sri Lanka 2007-8, Sri Lanka 2018-19 are the only sides that have a poorer ratio than that. Uh, relative to this Pakistan side that's just come out here. So I would say, yes, they did su- did show some fight. But Australia only lost three wickets in that second test, and Steve Smith threw his away. So it was a colossal destruction of Pakistan. The only <laughs> last thing I'll say on that, 
<laughs> on this little monologue is that um, when Australia went to Pakistan in 2000, went to the UAE in 2014-15, we didn't do much better, so we, we can't be too cocky. Now, uh, during the second test at the Adelaide Oval, Steve Smith became the fastest ever player to reach 7,000 runs in test cricket. I think this is the proof that at the moment he should be considered the best since Bradman. What do you think, Paul? I think that he is probably the, the, the second best since Bradman at the moment, and this is a great stat, although I still think it's just a slightly inferior version of batting average that when you're talking about just number of test matches, you know, Gary Sobers used to bat at number six, often probably didn't get much of a run in the second inning. So I'd still prefer just to look at averages. And on that score, he is clearly number two, that he's um, currently averaging 63.75. That's three clear runs above third place and a further two runs back um, to fourth place. So I think that um, he's sitting pretty in that regard. One stat that I love is what Howstat um, has, which is they have the best average after each number of innings in the history of the game. So obviously in the early numbers, Bradman is totally up the top. But after he retires, there's a, a cavalcade of, of the all-time greats. And right at this moment, Smith has played 126 innings and he is, after 126 innings, he has a higher average than anyone in history. So he's averaging 63.75. 127 innings, the record's currently held by Walter Hammond at 61.46. So if Smith gets a duck, he'll still be ahead of that. But my concern would be he's not that far ahead. Um, so I think if we stopped the time right now, we'd say, yep, Steve Smith's the second best since Bradman. But let's see where he, where he ends up at the end of his career. It's, it's, he's not so far ahead that he couldn't be caught. I absolutely agree with that. And we saw it with Ricky Ponting. He's a prime example. Yes. His test average was above 60 at one point. He was absolutely motoring along. He was on the trajectory to be considered the best since Bradman mm. on his record. And then in the last few years, his average sort of dropped from above 60 to just above 50. So it can happen. But at this moment, he's scored 7,000 runs faster than anyone else in test cricket. So it's an amazing feat. And I must admit, one of the great pleasures I've had watching cricket in the last six years has been watching Steve Smith bat. It did kind of, I don't know, reinvigorated my love for the game a little bit, just seeing such brilliance. Me too. I agree 100% that when I was a big fan of Steve Ward, there was always, a, no matter how much I wanted Australia to do well, the minute Australia were three down and War was coming out to bat, I, I would drop everything and I would, you know, I'd, I'd ruin my, my family's life because I would be in front of the TV <laughs> at that point. And Smith... Um, you and me both. <laughs> and Smith is getting to that. No, he's at that stage as well. So uh, I, I completely agree. An interesting little quip by Marnus Lobachain that Steve Smith said to him, Enjoy your last innings at number three, son. <laughs> I don't think Steve Smith enjoyed sitting on the sidelines for most of this series watching Marnus and Warner bat. Um, I think he was only joking, though. Paul, how do you think the Adelaide pitch t came out for this match? Uh, a little bit disappointing, to be honest. I think that the recent day-night test at Adelaide, they've got it really, uh, the balance really good. They are probably always a bit concerned that they don't want to have the nighttime session so bowler dominated that the game's over in two days. And I think they've maybe erred a little bit too much on the side of not leaving enough grass on there. There was a period, I mean, Wazim Akram made the point um, on Foxtel that Yassir Shah had never scored a 50 in Test cricket, let alone never scored a 100. And there he was against the best three bowlers in the world, pretty much. And you throw Jasper Boomer in there as well. But 
he was making it look easy. Uh, and so there was a period there in the daytime where I think that the bowlers did need more. Um, so I don't think it was a terrible pitch, but I think that I would like to see in future day-night pitches that they are on the side of um, giving the bowlers a bit more. And, and, and I think it's a double-edged sword with that one because I think the harder pitch softens the ball as well, which makes it harder for the bowlers. There is a lot of reports that the pink kookaburra has been getting softer than the red kookaburra. So it's it works both ways. If you leave a little bit of grass on the pitch and make it a bit softer, the ball also holds its hardness a bit better. Yeah, and I mean, I, I encourage them to continue to work on the pink ball and if Dukes have a better one then switch to it. Now uh, let's give out the cricket unfiltered test player points for the second test against Pakistan. Paul do you want to award your points? Yep three for Warner, two for Stark, one for Labashane and obviously those three are the only that are in contention. I'd just be interested to see which order you put them in, Manners. So I'm going Warner, three points. Nathan Lyon, two points for his match-winning five for 69. And then Mitchell Stark, one point. So I've left Manus out of this list. Now, I'd point out that Mitchell Stark took seven for 113 in the match. Nathan Lyon took five for 134, and he did very well. But I would contend that you're concerned that the Cricket Unfiltered Test Player of the Year award hasn't yet taken over the headlines like you thought it would, and you're just um, putting up, putting a, a fake name in there for a bit of uh, controversy. Absolutely not. Nathan Lyon has bounced back after a slow start to the summer and bowled Australia to victory in the final innings of a Test match. For me, that deserves Cricket Unfiltered Test Player of the Year award points. But the and fact that he's bounced back after a slow start to a summer, that's got nothing to do with it. That's a separate point. We were just we're rewarding, rewarding excellence here, not... Uh, OK, I'm saying his 5 for 69 to bowl Australia to victory was excellent. And if you take in the broader context, it was even more excellent. Fair enough. So the cumulative score is David Warner, 9 points. Marnus Lobachane, 7 points. Mitchell Stark, 6 points. Nathan Lyon, 2 points. Now, looking at the series as a whole, David Warner's... Aggregate of 489 runs at an average of 489, which will certainly boost his test average, you would think. So his um, tally of runs is the second highest tally of runs in a two-test series behind Hayden's 501 against Zimbabwe in 2003. That's where he made the record 380. And Marnus Lobachan made 347 runs in the series and now is the leading test run scorer in the world, having 829 runs to his name. Pat Cummins has 51 test wickets and he's leading the world in test wickets. And Mitchell Stark, as, as Pete mentioned, has come back. I, I think he benefited from what they did to him in England. I think they were saying, mate, you've got to get more accurate. And he probably uh, dispute that narrative. But I think that the fact that they've said to him, if you're going to play for Australia... You've got to be able to bowl it on a threepence. Um, I think he's come back with all his speed and all of his tricks, but uh, less likely to spray it round. And it's, it's I'm going to just throw this up and just say, I did say I thought Mitchell Stark would dominate Pakistan in this series. He took 14 wickets at 17, and I've been proved right. That was, he does seem to really almost bully some touring sides that come here. Yeah, I mean, was, your, your prediction is correct. I wouldn't say it's the, the most... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's not the most amazing prediction. <laughs> like predicting that summer's going to be hot. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So, but yeah, 14 wickets at 17 for Stark, 10 wickets at 22 for Josh Hazelwood. Pat Cummins, 8 wickets at 32. Ooh. And I think he bowled better than that. He was just a bit unlucky. And Lyons, 7 wickets at 35. All righty. So, that's our wrap of the Australia v Pakistan Test Series. Thanks so much to Pete Lawler from the Australian for 
for a chat and we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with all the week's cricket headlines. Remember, you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. That's A-U-S Cricket Pod. You can also email us any questions, ozcricketpod at gmail.com, A-U-S Cricket Pod. We're on Facebook as the Australian Cricket Podcast and we're also on TikTok as Cricket Unfiltered. Go and find us on TikTok. It's a lot of fun. Right, coming up after the break, the cricket headlines. She goes around the wicket. She's going to target the pads. Oh, no. She's gone again. That is amazing hitting. Five massive sixes to finish the game. You're listening to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host, Manners. I'm with Paul Dennett. That was the Adelaide Strikers, Sophie Devine, hitting one of her 27 sixes that she hit in this year's edition of the Women's Big Bash League. Let's get straight into the week's cricket headlines brought to you by Piccolo Podcasts. And that is where we're going to start. The Women's Big Bash League finals have been decided. And I am not happy with the scheduling of the finals. So um, Brisbane Heat are hosting and then Adelaide Strikers finished second, Perth Scorchers third and the Melbourne Renegades fourth. That means the times have worked out that the first semi-final starts at 11.10 Saturday morning, Australian Eastern Daylight Saving Time. The second semi-final is that afternoon at 2.50pm and then the grand final is Sunday 2.40pm Australian Eastern Standard Daylight Saving Time. I think there's a huge missed opportunity here, Paul, not to play these games, say, Friday, Saturday and Sunday night and get lots of people watching on TV. I completely agree. And I even think that's not the worst thing. The worst thing is none of them are on Channel 7. They're all on Channel 7, mate. So they're not even on the main channel? No, because Channel 7 have the Australian Open Golf on instead. Now, I've got nothing against the Australian Open Golf. I like it. But we like cricket more. Yeah, of course. But what I'm saying is your point's 100% right. And I looked it up. Friday night, they have Better Homes and Gardens on Channel 7. And some, Give that a miss. Some movie from 2013. Saturday night... I don't watch movies. Saturday night, they got the New South Wales School Spectacular. Now, the kids will be very talented, but I went to that once as a kid, and it's a little bit on the boring side. Uh, and Sunday night, they've got Love Actually for the 756,000th time. Good movie, but they should have had bang, 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 the, the, the two semifinals and the final, and it would have rated the house down. And the Perth Test matching in a few days' time is also going to be at night. It's going to get people in the habit of watching cricket at night. Um, I, I think you're 100% right on this. Yeah, really pissed off about it, I've got to say, Paul, because I love the women's big bash. I think this tournament has been so exciting. And if you're a Perth Scorchers fan, they are playing at 8 10 a.m. on Saturday morning Perth time. So you, you're literally saying to the Perth Scorchers fans, we don't really care about you, and we're just going to schedule it at an inconvenient time. Yeah, now I, I get that it's tough for them because scheduling's never easy. But, but, but how tough is it, though, really? There's no other cricket on this weekend, is there? I just think that Channel 7 think that Love actually is going to outrate it, and I think they're probably wrong. I reckon that on Sunday night, if they, had a, if they promoted it really well, if they'd had lots of highlights in the lead-up to it, really bigging it up, I think that um, the Women's Big Bash final would have done just as well as Love, actually, if not better. And I tweeted something out about this, and Scott Bailey, a cricket reporter for AAP, did reply to me saying that there is a feeling that you get more crowds during the day to the Women's Big Bash League, which I think is probably true. But I think in this 
instance, the finals deserve to be in prime time on TV because you might get a 1,000 more people to the game if you have it during the day, but you might get 200,000 more people watching it on TV. So you do the math down what's better for the competition. But I think it's a big miss, and I hope they learn from it. Now, the other news from the Women's Big Bash League final is for the first time in the competition's five-year history, the Sydney, both Sydney teams have missed out on the finals. I was at uh, the Sydney Sixers final home game on the weekend. I have to say Elise Perry looked absolutely gutted that her team had missed out on the, the semifinals. And, uh, yeah, it's a big thing for both Sydney teams to miss out. I think it shows the competition's really growing. Yeah, I agree. And did you have a good time at Hurstville? It's my, my local ground. Yeah, it was a really wonderful atmosphere there. There was a good crowd on the hill, lots of activities for the kids. And one thing I notice, whenever I leave a women's Big Bash League game, I feel really good. I just feel better. I just feel like it's uplifting and the atmosphere around it is just really, I don't know, inspirational. I did get a bit of the... Um, I got a bit of the treatment that um, Spider Cam was getting. So I was interviewing a player on the field after the game. So I was doing a to-camera interview with Megan Shute. And while I was doing that, a four Adelaide Strikers players came and all stood around me staring <laughs> at Megan Shute like the, the Australian team's been doing when Spider Cam has been interviewing the players in the break. So that was a little bit off-putting, I have to say. No, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. It's probably it? more off-putting for Megan Shute. <laughs> Yeah, I, I quite I quite like those interviews. Um, I'm not, not normally a fan for interviews during the play, but um, I think the spider cam ones at the, at the drinks break, I, I find that quite good TV. Yeah, Payne was asked after the test match in Adelaide whether he liked it, and he thinks it's a great idea. He thinks it's a good way of engaging with the public. As captain, he doesn't want to do it because he's got a lot to worry about but he's happy for the players to do it just on the women's big bash league heading into the finals i will give you my tips the brisbane heat look unstoppable playing at home confident unit i can see them cruising to the victory meg lanning scored her first women's big bash league ton last weekend she's in great form leading the scorches into the finals but they lose two english internationals in amy jones and nat siver so that'll be two big holes to fill in the scorches lineup the Adelaide Strikers have Sophie Devine, so they're a team you cannot write off. What, 27 sixes in the Women's Big Bash League this year, which is a record for a male or female in any Big Bash tournament. Actually, I was going to say one other thing about the, the Women's Big Bash. Uh, I was at my local pub the other day during, watching a bit of the test match there, and this is a pub where they are aware of the existence of three sports, rugby league, horse racing, and cricket. And cricket very much the number three of those sports and there was these four old blokes there that they're there all the time i heard them arguing away and i suddenly realized they're arguing about who was going to make the finals of the women's big bash and they're arguing they knew the table they were arguing intelligently and passionately and uh, i just thought wow this is this was unthinkable two years ago even let alone 10 years ago so um pretty pretty great progress i reckon yeah it just shows what a great success this tournament has been the last thing on the finals is, so the Heat are hosting the Renegades. I don't know if the listeners remember last year, but the Renegades actually earlier this year because of the way the season's worked out. But the Renegades missed out on the final last year when the Sixers beat them with that fantastic throw by Elisa Healy to run out a player and stop them getting the winning run, which led to a super over. So I don't know. I think the Renegades deserve a bit of luck. So if, if they get into the game against the Heat, maybe fortune will favour them. All right, the next bit of news, disappointingly for the Big Bash, Andre Russell is not going to be playing in this year's edition. Were reports that he would sign with the Renegades, but that has fallen through. 
It's interesting. Wonder why? Yeah, it is interesting, but it's, a, it's such a shame because he is a, a force to be reckoned with in yeah, the absolutely, big bash. Yeah. Now the Sheffield Shield is got one round before they take their break for the big bash, and it is becoming a real humdinger. This Sheffield Shield, New South Wales, streaked ahead with four wins from their first four games, and after the first four rounds, it looked like. Um, they were almost a shoe in to host the final, but then Queensland have bounced back. They beat Victoria in fading light two games ago, and then they beat Tasmania in two days in their last game. So now they are just one win behind New South Wales on the ladder. And this weekend, New South Wales host Queensland at the SCG, and that is shaping up to be a really important battle in the Shield. Yeah, hopefully the game can go ahead. Um, we've got a lot of um, bushfires around Sydney at the moment. The last couple of days, the air quality has been terrible. It's not something that I've ever even contemplated, a game in um, this country being cancelled because of poor air quality. But I think that by Saturday, it's, it's forecast to improve a little bit, but it could be an issue going forward. Let's hope it doesn't become one this time around. Uh, I was a bit concerned with the New South Wales, not the New South Wales, yeah, the New South Wales-Victoria game at the MCG. Uh, I didn't think it was the worst pitch at the MCG, but it also didn't give me great hope that Boxing Day is going to be uh, a lively pitch like we really want. What did you think? I didn't see much of it. But I did hear that Victoria batted very defensively in their first innings and didn't really take the game on, which did frustrate New South Wales. I think there's more concerns about the SCG pitch. I'm really curious what we're going to get Mm. served up this weekend. We saw a very strange pitch last time. Also, I'm curious how this new Kookaburra ball functions. So I haven't seen it up close, but we'll see it this weekend that... There's an extra coat of lacquer or they've done something to this kookaburra ball to make it a little bit like the Duke's Mm. ball. So I'm really wondering if that's just going to swing a little bit more. Hopefully, yeah. That'd be great. And if it does, they should just say to New Zealand, look, let's just throw this into the test matches for the the second and third test match. I'm serious. Like, you know, if if let's say that the our worst fears are confirmed and the MCG and the SCG are pretty docile... What a terrible end to the summer if, we, if the summer never gets to any great heights. If this ball happens to, to give something to the bowlers, then we should clutch onto it and use it. I agree. Some notable performance from the last round of the Shield. Cameron Green made 126, and he's the real buzz player in Australian cricket at the moment. The tall West Australian all-rounder was talked about as being even put in the, the next test squad for New Zealand, which has been announced. And the only change is Cameron Bancroft's excluded. So they've just named 13, the same 13 that were in the, the Pakistan series. Be interesting if Cameron Green could bowl because he's still That's right. not he able to bowl, bowl at the moment. I reckon if he could bowl. <laughs> the funny thing is, before we go, we saw him play against New South Wales <laughs> and he shouldered arms twice. to two balls <laughs> and got bowled twice for two ducks. Or I don't yeah. know. It was it two ducks, at least one duck. To be fair, they were pretty handy deliveries. One was, one was from Hazelwood and one was from Cummins, and the Cummins one had, had been on the back of about three outswingers. And then this one, I think, yeah. <laughs> but it's like everyone's told us how amazing yeah. this player is. And all I've seen is him shoulder arms and get bowled twice. That's true. Um, but if he could be bowling, I mean, it'd be pretty hard to drop Travis Head after this last test match yeah. when he didn't um, bowl or bat or field or basically yeah. do anything. Um, Matt, got- it'd be funny if they did drop him and say, look, we want to see a bit more from you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Green is a player to watch. And with the, the test matches at, say the SCG maybe picking two spinners. Australia might look at an all-rounder, but Cameron Green not bowling is a big thing. 
Alex Carey made 143 and his trajectory towards mm. taking over uh, as the test wicketkeeper looks pretty good. Sean Marsh made 102 not out. Sean Marsh fan club continues. And Nick Madsen and Will Pekofsky both made returns to the Victorian side. Madsen 59, Pekofsky 82. Interestingly, in that game at the MCG, Stephen O'Keefe took five for 80. And in my opinion, if Australia wants a second spinner against New Zealand at the SCG, there can be no one else but Stephen O'Keefe. They literally can be no one else. I agree. But I have this inkling that they're not all that keen to pick him. Uh, you know, they're talking about Agar, and I, I wouldn't mind that. I, I like Agar, but I think you're picking Agar more because his batting is so good and his bowling is handy. But O'Keefe's first-class record is superb. He out-bowled John Holland in this game, who would be the other competitor for the job. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd pick O'Keefe all day of the week, every <laughs> every day of the week. And Sam Heaslett, the young Queensland batsman, made 135. He came in when his team was three for not many. He's certainly a player to watch. But as I said, massive game at the SCG this weekend with New South Wales hosting Queensland. Paul and I should be on commentary there. So if you go to cricket.com.au, be able to tune in and watch the stream and listen to us take you through the game. Can't wait. Looking forward to it immensely. Yeah, I can't wait. There'll be some good players on action. Michael Nessa is being uh, brought into the Queensland team. Usman Kawaja, Matty Renshaw. Yeah, can't wait. Uh, Last bit of news before we wrap up this edition of Cricket Unfiltered. Mickey Arthur is set to take over as Sri Lanka's head coach. Bit of news that will concern Australian fans. David Saker is reportedly going to be the bowling coach for Sri Lanka. He was just most recently the Australian assistant coach before the Ashes. And Grant Flower is the batting coach as well. I think this is great. Um, I've, I really think that the, the nations like Sri Lanka and Pakistan and West Indies, if a, a really professional, good coaching setup can elevate them. They're not far behind the best sides. And it's often those one percenters taking wickets off no balls, dropping catches, uh, turning threes into two when you're running and turning twos into three when you're fielding, all those sorts of things. Uh, I think that Mickey Arthur is a, a fantastic appointment and I hope to see uh, Sri Lankan cricket uh, rise back up to where it was a few years ago as a result. Yep, great appointment and there can be no doubt in my mind that if Mickey Arthur was coach of this Pakistan side that had come to Australia, they would have been a lot more competitive or still coach. Oh, it's absolutely bizarre. I would have kept Steve Rickson. I know he was left a little bit earlier, but Mickey Arthur as coach and Steve Rickson as fielding coach, I think they're heading in a good direction. Well, Paul, I think we should wrap up this episode of Cricket Unfiltered. Uh, where can the listeners find you on social media? I'm at the underscore summer underscore game on Twitter and at paul.dennett on TikTok, where, quite amusingly, the other week I did a video, uh, a, a TikTok, about Don Bradman's series against South Africa in 1931-32. And I pointed out that his 299 not out was still to this day the highest ever score on the Adelaide Oval in a test match, as it had been for 88 years. A week later, it's no longer the case. The video is outdated. David Warner has blown him away. <laughs> Have you taken it down? No, no, no. <laughs> Any fact checkers pointed out? Yes, it has been. Um, and I've, you know, I've acknowledged it. But um, yeah, the video is still there. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Amenas, A-M-E-N-N-E-R-S. And you can find me on Instagram at Amenas Cricket. And head to TikTok for the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. Well, thanks for tuning in to Cricket Unfiltered this week. Thanks again to Pete Lawler for joining us on the podcast. We'll be coming to you next week from the SCG. Sports Social Podcast Network.